It's actually it kind, it's somewhat fitting to be doing this offering on the Sunday when the message uh, comes from a passage that has quite a lot to do with giving. There's this story that we're going to hear about Jesus and about uh, some who were giving just a lot of money towards a good cause and others who didn't have so much to give, and yet Jesus commends them uh, for the heart with which they bring it. And uh, that's going to be in Mark 12 in just a moment. But in thinking about this story of, of the, uh, that we're going to see, I was thinking about a time when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was very involved uh, in my church's uh, youth group and high school program and things like that. There was a lot going on. I loved it. And then one summer, they promoted this big missions trip. May have been to Sweden, may have been to China. I don't remember because they did a lot of them. But I remember in this particular one, it really got some momentum going. People started getting really excited and, and had a sense of this is what I want to be doing. And so uh, week after week after week, I would hear these stories of, of a young person who said, hey, I've been saving up money for three years to go to college or two years to get a car. And I've got all the money here in front of me. And I just feel impressed by God to spend that money to go on this outreach trip. And it was inspiring to hear young people talking about wanting to take everything they had that had been set aside for one purpose and to redirect it in another direction because of God's input in their life. And yet at the same time, there was this tension for me because I was saving for a car and I was saving to go to college and I didn't want to go on this mission trip. <laughs> I, kinda, I, I just didn't feel that same kind of intensity that others had. But when they did and when they were putting their money towards it, I got to tell you, it set up this tension in me, like this comparison tension about, well, what they're doing with, with their money and maybe what should I be doing with my money? And don't I love Jesus enough? And do they love Jesus more than me? And is Jesus even happy? And what am I doing with all this money? I got really uptight about that, which is what tends to happen when we start comparing ourselves with others rather than just walking in obedience to what God calls us to be and what he calls us to do. And I think that some of those kinds of comparison tensions are right at the heart of what Jesus was bringing to the front as uh, he has this encounter in the temple with some folks who were given a lot and, uh, and a widow who didn't have a lot to give but brought everything that she had. It comes out of Mark 12, uh, down kind of late in the chapter. Jesus, we're told, sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came, and she put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Jesus uh, calls his disciples. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow, she has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything, all that she had to live on. And he commends her for this act of faith. Now this particular passage, it's a favorite in Sunday school when you're a kid. Uh, and then you become an adult. And it's frequently met with the, uh-oh, here comes the pastor telling me I'm supposed to put everything I have into the collection plate as it comes by. And so the defenses go up because I'm about to have my arm twisted behind me and he's going to use the leverage and the manipulation and the guilt to make me feel bad about everything I didn't put in the plate as it went by just a little bit ago. And I just want to say, if that's been your experience with this passage, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am sorry that you had to endure that. And I'm also going to commit to you that that's really not where this is going this morning. 
And I'm going to ask you to just kind of to listen on and trust me on that one. And it's not because I'm afraid to offend you. I think I've demonstrated over the years. I'm very willing to offend you. <laughs> Some of you more than others, and you know who you are. But this is not about that. This is actually about looking at the scripture and taking in the context and understanding what's in play and what's really taking place here. And Jesus watches this woman making these contributions in the temple. And in that first century world, here's one of the things that we have to understand. They already had a system in place for providing for the kind of the mechanisms of the religious life of the community to make sure that the priests and the Levites who couldn't go farm the land like everybody else, that they had some revenue to work with, to make sure that the, the synagogues and local places of worship were up and running and kept clean and functional and all those sorts of things. And that mechanism was the tithe, that from, whatever, from the increase of your year, whether you were a farmer or a carpenter or a tradesperson, that whatever money you made in the year, a tenth of that right off the top was set aside to meet these needs of the ongoing provision for the religious life of the community. That was just how that worked. That was kind of an expectation of being part of the community there. It was um, something God directed very clearly. It was a have to. And that was in place for those purposes. In addition to just the basic have to of tithing at the time, they also um, actually had a, a temple tax. Way, way, way back in King Solomon's time, they built the original temple. That was great. And then uh, Quite a while after that, the Israelites were conquered. They went, off to, uh, they went off to Babylon because they were conquered and they were exiled there. And then 70 years later, they came back. And then sometime after that, they began rebuilding the temple again. It took close to 50 years to rebuild the temple. Okay, And, in, and the way that they financed that, at least in part, was they established a temple tax. So that in addition to tithing a tenth of your proceeds each year, now you were paying a tax to come to the temple which got me thinking about how it would work to like do a cover charge for coming into church on a Sunday morning, right? That's right, North Church, home of the $10 cover charge and the two prayer minimum, come join us. We look forward to seeing you there. But that's how they did that. And then there were all kinds of other things like the, the two copper coins that the widow had were probably the result of having to do like a, a currency exchange out in front where they probably got ripped off by the money changers. That's why Jesus got mad at them. And what she was left with after all of that is just a little bit of leftover. So here's what you need to understand about the widow. As she comes into play, she's done her tithing. She's been faithful in, in the supposed to and in the have to. And she's paid her temple tax already. She's, she's paid out what's been obligated. She's done what's necessary to participate in being there in the temple. All the have to's are taken care of. What, what she's dealing with here with this offering is just something that's above and beyond and different. It's really not very much like the tithes and offerings that we take routinely on a Sunday morning. It's very much more like what we're doing with Partners International and supporting uh, church planters or any of the different opportunities that come before us when we say, hey, God's given, given me a passion for this. This is something beyond a routine, regular, established pattern of giving that helps things run. This is something that connects with my heart and my passion, and I want to give myself to it. So that's what's going on in this particular situation. And with that in view, I just want to highlight a couple of the key, maybe lessons that we can learn by looking at uh, three key characters in this narrative. And, and Jesus is the first one. It strikes me as I read that passage that there's Jesus in the temple and it says that he was watching them put their money into the treasury. 
He was watching them give. He saw who put in what. He saw where they put it. He saw the amount that they put it. He had a sense of their motives as they did that. And that's a little, I gotta be honest, a little unnerving for me. I, I kind of want to have this feeling like Jesus is kind of above the whole money thing. Like he's not gonna dirty his hands by being involved in my finances anyway. That's just not his thing. And yet there he is, watching, paying attention, directing his focus to this process of giving. I mean, earlier up in that chapter, he's already talked about taxes and paying the tax to Caesar and rendering to God what is God. He's got some ideas about money, but now he's watching. And that makes me uncomfortable. Because we live in a, right? We live in a world, in a culture, in a time where our finances are kind of private. Like my money's my business. I'll talk to you about my life. I talk to you about my football teams that I love. I'll talk to you about all kinds of stuff. But my money's kind of my business and not your business. And there's a part of me that wants to say to Jesus where my money is concerned. You know, Jesus, very politely, that's really not your concern. That, that's my concern. So would you politely just turn your head away from my finances and from my decisions about giving and what I do with my money? That's how I feel. And then I run across this text that says, yeah, Jesus is there watching the whole time. Uh-oh. And again, that's not about guilt. The uh-oh has nothing to do with the finances. The uh-oh for me is this, that Jesus didn't design this life to have any compartments that he's not Lord over. Right? The, de the declaration of those who followed Jesus since the beginning has been Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord doesn't just mean the cosmic God who will rule all the universe, although that's included, but it also means my Lord and Master in the day-to-day -day stuff of this life, here and now. God's agenda for us is not just to get us into some eternal state of heaven, although that's part of it, right? His agenda is not just to settle the eternal state of our souls, although that's part of it, but God has an agenda for today here in the life that we live day in and day out, and he has something to say about every facet of that existence. He has something to say as our Lord about what we do with our money. He has something to say as our Lord about the way we conduct our relationships. He has something to say as our Lord of, about our sexuality and the exercise thereof. So you pick the portion of your life that you don't want Jesus messing in, and Jesus is there looking, because he is Lord. And that puts us in a very precarious place, unless we're willing to call that what it is. Jesus, I don't think this is any of your business. But most of us aren't at that place. So I just want to challenge you, perhaps. Is there, is there an area, a corner, a portion of your life that you need to write Jesus a new permission slip starting today? This place has been off limits until now. But Jesus, today I'm inviting you in to have your way, to lead, guide, direct, and to be my Lord. I give you my permission to just watch what I'm doing there, whether that's about my money or whether that's about anything else. It's a challenging thought. I invite you to dive in. It's a lot of fun. So that's Jesus. Another character or group really here are, um, are all the rich people who are putting lots of money into the treasury, right? And so... This was the, the temple was huge. This is this little kind of alcove, a couple hundred square feet, that had 13 receptacles where you could contribute money. And they were shaped um, kind of narrow at the top and then flared out at the bottom like the, like the horn of a trumpet, right? 
And if you turned that on its side and just sat it there, it would look like that. And the result of that is that when you poured a big pile of coins in, it would make a great big clanging, rattling noise. And everyone could hear what was going on. So if you recall Matthew uh, chapter 5, I believe, is in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about giving. And he talks about the rich people who come and sound the trumpets as they're giving. He's like, that's what they called that when you poured a bunch of coins into the, into the receptacle and it made a lot of noise. That was called sounding the trumpets. And they did that because they loved the attention that they got out of it. And that's what they do. Jesus sees that. And he doesn't really spend a lot of time condemning them, which I think is really, he does elsewhere, but not in this passage. But there's something here I think we just have to address. Because as they're making all that noise and they're pouring all that wealth into the receptacles and people are going, look, isn't that great? The temple needs to be built. The temple needs to be maintained. And look, they're going to take care of it with all of their resources. Isn't that, like a, isn't that such a natural thing to do at that point to go, oh, thank God somebody else is taking care of that. How naturally we look to others to take care of the things that we notice, right? How often do we walk around and go, somebody should do something about that. I hope somebody with a lot of resource does something about that. Isn't it possible that he's not just looking for people with lots of resources? Isn't it possible he's looking for people who are just willing to put the two copper coins that they've got into play? I read a fa uh, post on Facebook, a story this week. Um, it was about a mom whose uh, uh, boy had gotten in, in some trouble at home, and as a punishment, she made him mow the neighbor's lawn for free. And uh, he did that, and, and something unexpected happened. He kind of enjoyed it. He liked the idea of making their home look better. He liked the idea of helping somebody else. And he said, you know, this is, I'd like to do some more of this. And so then he went and got the next neighbor's home and the next neighbor home. It was kind of a run-down neighborhood, but it started looking nice. And he grabbed his brother, and then the two of them grabbed some friends. And pretty soon, they're just going through the neighborhood, making it beautiful by mowing everybody's lawn and cleaning up. It's a great story. It's an inspiring story. Now they're going all over their city doing this, and it's becoming this big campaign. Really inspiring. And then I started reading down the list of comments uh, on the post. And it's like every other one. This is really great. Um, Home Depot should buy them a lawnmower. Disneyland should provide them a trip out to thank them for what they're doing. John Deere should buy them a tractor. <laughs> Everyone had all these great ideas about what somebody else with lots of resources should do to dive in on this. And then every so often there would be one who said, hey, how can I help? What could I do? If I wanted to help, where would I direct some resources? And I thought, what a, what a powerful distinction from the, hey, this is great, but I really want somebody else to take care of it, to, man, this is inspiring, and I'm going to do something about it, even if it's not huge, right? Isn't that the way it is with us? I just want to ask you, is there something out there that when you walk by it, and I'm talking about here at the church or out in the world or at your business or your family, is there that thing that you notice along the way, and you go, man, someone needs to do something about that. We should have this ministry. Someone needs to take care of that problem. Just based on this problem, I want to suggest... It may be that you've fallen in the trap of saying, well, other people have resources, they should do it. When in all possibility, this is God speaking to you and saying, hey, here's, here's an interest I've put in your heart. Here's something I've helped you to notice. What are you going to do about it? And you may say, but I, I can't do that much. Well, Jesus looked at the faith of the widow and the two pennies that she put in, and he said, that's more than any of them. That's more than any of them. 
We've got to maybe break out of the habit of looking to those with resources or looking to programs or looking to governments or looking to churches and organizations to do this stuff and say, God, what are you calling me to do? What can, what can I bring to the table? What steps can I take? And even if they're small, it'll be awesome. So then let's look at the widow herself. Tough being a widow in the first century, especially in Israel. There, there's really no means for you to support yourself. You didn't have the credibility in the society to go start a business. Um, you were just kind of left to the, to the devices of people who would stick up for you and plead your case and take care of you. It was like being on a super, super, super limited income that was based on the goodwill of other people. That was a tough place to be, and that's how she lived. And, and yet, you know, the temple took 46 years to build. It's possible she grew up. As a, as a young girl, you know, when the temple started being built and as it started taking shape and being formed, she probably heard her dad, right, complain about this new temple tax that he was having to pay and getting grumpy about that. But somewhere along the way, this temple, this sense of God's presence here amongst us became a big deal to her. It connected with her heart and she wanted to be a part of it. It mattered to her and it became something that to her was worth giving her everything to. And so she struggled along and she, she did all the have-tos. She paid the tithe. She paid the temple tax. She paid the money changers. And all that's left at the all of her very fragile, contingent kind of life is a couple of copper coins. And she couldn't wait to get to the receptacles and put the money in. Not because she had to, not because it was expected, but because this thing she wanted to be a part of, this presence of God in this place. She found a passion that was worth devoting her life to. And Jesus recognized it. And I want to ask you if you have something in your life that maybe God's pressing into a passion in the same kind of way. I hope that we're all here living for something more valuable and more significant than a comfortable retirement or some really cool toys along the way. But I'm hoping that there's something that God is beginning to show many of us, and maybe even all of us, that like, here's something. It's not that you have to, or that you must, or that it's expected, but here's a passion I've put in your heart that it's beginning to reveal itself. This is going to become something that's worth giving your life to. And if we take the widow's example seriously, I mean, I see a few things there. I see, one, that this was a big thing. This, this passion God put on her heart, it was bigger than she was going to be able to do, right? Like, she was never, with every coin she had ever earned, going to make a huge dent in what it cost to build this temple. It was way bigger than that, but it was her passion. Right? And this other thing about her passion was this temple wasn't just about going to be blessing her. In addition to being big and beyond her, the, the benefit was for others and not for herself. And I believe that the passion that God will put within us that's worth us giving our lives to is always about something that's way beyond our ability to accomplish on our own, and it's very rarely about our own fulfillment. It's about the fulfillment of, other, of others and the blessing of others. But when we get a hold of it, we will, like the widow, be willing to give our entire life to it. I think of uh, my wife Rochelle's grandmother. Um, as she was kind of in the last years of her life, she knew exactly what her passion was. Her life, as far as she was concerned, the only reason she was still alive was to be praying for her grandkids and make sure that they knew Jesus. That was the sole and only passion of this woman's life, and she would give every penny she ever had to see that happen. The day that I met her, that Rochelle introduced me and said, Grandma, this is my fiancé, Scott. She said, do you love Jesus? I said, yes, nice to meet you too. 
I'm good in that department, thanks. But that was it, there was no get, that was the heart of who she was and it was never gonna change. I want that. I want that big, significant, way bigger than I am. I'm probably not gonna fix the problem, but I would give my last two pennies to contribute towards the solution kind of a thing, that kind of passion. Because when we connect with that, you know what happens? The giving and the contributing, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our energy or whatever it is, the contribution becomes ridiculously joyful. It becomes a lot of fun. It becomes energizing to say, I'm helping this, hap I'm helping this to happen. When I think about the fact that there are families who have given their lives in North Sumatra and put their lives at risk so that the gospel can go into a place that it never has, that's exciting. I can cheerfully give to that. Not because I have to, not because anybody's looking, not because I'm being judged, and not even because I have so much to give, but simply because God puts a passion in my heart and I want to do that. Do you know what that thing is for you? It may be here around the church or it may be at your work or it may be in your community or within your family or your school or wherever you are. But let's together commit to finding that and then commit to stepping into that with courage. Whether we got buckets of gold to pour into it or whether we got a couple of copper pennies, either way, God is honored and Jesus commends it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to make a difference in this world, the difference in this world that you want us to make. And God, I'm I'm just willing to believe that you place within us these passions, these desires, these things that we notice, these things that need to get changed, these situations that need to be addressed. And God, I want to pray for all of us that you would make us incredibly, even painfully aware of the things that need to take place and the issues that need to get addressed. And God, would you, would you show us what those are? And then God, would you direct us to the ways that we can do something about it? God, together, we, we say that we're done with looking for that person or that big conglomerate or this big organized church or that system to take care of it. God, what do you want me to do today and this week? God, if you make that clear to us, we're committing in advance. Before we even know what you're saying, we're committing in advance to say yes, and we're on board. And God, would you give us the courage and the passion to live that out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we thank you so much for finding North Church Sermons Online, and we hope that the message today brought value and enrichment to your life. If you'd like to participate in the giving of this ministry, there's a couple of easy ways for you to do that. You can text the word NORTH to 77977 and receive a text back and get your online giving set up in under 60 seconds. Or else you can visit us online at northchurch.net and click on Give Online and participating in the things that God God's doing right here at North Church. We thank you so much for joining us. God bless.